Hello, my dear friends. Happy New Year and welcome back to The Natural High, which is, of course, a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. Many of you who will have listened to the podcast will already know about B Corporations, but it's something that I want to talk about very quickly before I start, because B Corporations are businesses that meet the highest standards of verified social and environmental performance, public transparency, legal accountability, to balance profit and purpose. So basically, they are companies that hold themselves to the highest standards of practice to become overall a net positive to their communities, to their environment and to the planet. So they're really, really cool. And I think that we should be paying attention to them. When I think about how we can change the world from our homes, the podcast is always about how we can change the world in practical terms ourselves. It's not good enough just to moan about politicians. We need to make changes ourselves. And subscribing and following and using B Corporation is a brilliant way to do it. There are so many of us that can easily switch from a lot of the companies that we use to B Corporations. There are loads of them, and they are growing all the time. Some of the more famous ones, Ben & Jerry's, I believe, The Body Shop, Allbirds, Patagonia. There are so many. So go to bcorporation.net. That's the letter B, corporation.net, to find out much more about it. But yeah, this is a really cool movement, and we can change the world by degrees by using B corporations, where the profit margin is not the only metric of success for the company. Anyway, this week's guest is Dominic Aversa. He is a very good friend of the natural high. He's an endlessly illuminating fellow who's done more in this lifetime than 10 average people might in theirs. He really is somebody who's just constantly exploring new ways of being, ways in which he can be happy and find more purpose in life and offer other people solutions to their problems. He's a really great guy. Uh, This week we talk about his latest book, Thank Goliath. We talk about child abuse, the child abuse that he suffered for many, many years, um, which is really brutal and disturbing. But again, there is strength in his adversity. He used it as a springboard to become successful in other ways in his life. We talk about going on retreats in Mongolia. We talk about monks in Kentucky. We talk about food, our shared love of food and wine and the importance of nutrition and nature in this modern world. It's a fascinating conversation which just flowed right from the off. There was very little structure to it, as usual but he's just brilliant. I could listen to him talk for days. As usual, you can find out all about Dom by going to thenaturalhighclub.com forward slash thank Goliath. You can find out all about Dom there, reach out to him and uh, see what else he's up to. And of course, if you are enjoying what you're listening to, please feel free to leave a review on whichever platform you're listening to this show. I am pretty certain this week that you will indeed enjoy the show. The Natural High. Okay, well, you know, our previous interviews were in a car. Yeah, I know. So this is a proper step up. This is an upgrade. Tell me, so, tell me what you're cooking and, and, and can I have some? Uh, you're a vegetarian, I think, <laughs> That's right? correct, yeah. So what you can have half the meal. I'm making an Indian meal. So I, I, I am making lentils, I'm, I'm making a dal, I'm making some um, 
some spinach as well. So you can have that part. And then I'm making a lamb stew, which I don't think you would want. So my dog would. My dog would definitely be into that. <laughs> well, I just see. I don't. I I actually prefer to be a vegetarian, but my wife has to eat meat. Her she tried being a vegetarian, and um, her body just responded very poorly. She actually started started losing her hair. Are you serious? Yeah, it was terrible. It took her about two years to grow back. Nirvana has oh very God. long hair, and she um, she made a concrete decision. You know, okay, I'm. Um, you know, let's be, I'm going to be a vegetarian and I'm fine with it. I, I didn't grow up eating a lot of meat. And within six months, she, her hair started falling out in clumps. Wow. Yeah. We went to every possible doctor and she's a, you know, a doctor herself. Of course, and, I've interviewed her. Yeah. And uh, it came down to that and she was in tears. The doc, she goes, but I have a moral problem with it. And the yeah. doctor said, well, you're either going to die, you know, by hanging on to your morals, uh, or you have to eat some meat. <laughs> Lose so. the morals or the hair, your choice. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so she's actually now found a good balance. And so I basically, I, I enjoy cooking, as you've probably read in uh, my books. And I, uh, so for me, it's a sport. I, whatever is in the pantry or in the fridge, I just try to make something out of it. Cooking, how does it make you feel and what do you enjoy about it? Oh, it's, it's, there's a couple things. First of all, I grew up with essentially farmers and we grew our own food. Mm. And so that, that palate and that um, process is still ingrained in me of, you know, I was. You say it was ingrained in you, but did you actually always, did you always gravitate towards it? Did you always enjoy it? Or did no, it just no. <laughs> because it did, you know, you're a kid, you want to be playing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, sometimes it was fun. But, you know, I started making wine with my uh, father and grandfather when I was seven years old. You know, you pick out the vines um, and, the, you know, some of the skins when you're going through the process. We made it all by hand and with no chemicals and things. I enjoyed planting the garden. That was always fun, watering. What I hated was um, the uh, when it came like August, when it came harvest season, because we would can hundreds and hundreds of jars of everything that was available, whether it was peaches, apples, my mother made all her jams, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, you name it. And so it all had to be preserved. And um, it's summertime. <laughs> I wanted to be playing, but you know, yeah. we had seven o'clock in the morning, we're driving out to the tomato fields, uh, <laughs> picking, that wasn't enjoyable. But what, what, what gets, what gets put into your, nervous system and your brain is the, the quality of the food and how it tastes. And so, for example, when I met Nirvana, um, you, you know, we'd go to the market and, and I'd look at the products and say, that's not a fresh apple. That's not a good, and I would criticize everything that I saw because of what a lot of these scoundrels do is they make it look like they're growing their own vegetables and fruits, mm -hmm. but they're buying them off of a distributor in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, they, they go around to these markets and make it look like they've, you know, they've done their own thing. I think in your neighborhood around San Francisco and Northern California, that may not occur as often. But I can recognize what happens is you get spoiled eating a, a, an apple. It seems silly, but once you've eaten things off of a tree, mm. that, that life force is there. And so there's more, there's energy, there's a crispness, and you digest it better. 
you feel better. You can eat a lot more when you're growing your own own vegetables and, and fruits. So that's would, what would I, they be organic vegetables that you'd have been growing as a kid, or would you have had oh, pesticides in there and stuff like that? No, no, my father wouldn't allow any of that. Right. He, uh, it seems no, like no. they're all very methodical and sort of perfectionist about. It. I remember reading a chapter, a chapter in your most recent book, which we're going to come on to, thank uh, Goliath, about you. Um, your was it your grandfather or your uncle who was an absolute <laughs> genius where it came to figs and and just preserving trees and and yeah, harvesting. He would, he was my great uncle, but he was essentially my grandfather. But yeah, that's I wrote that one uh, story. Um, I don't know if it'll make it in the final edit because for other reasons. But yeah, oh, I that's, thought it was wonderful. I really thought it was wonderful, and I love your your love of cooking because it's just one of the most important things in life, isn't it? Nutrition. Yeah, well, it's it's. Th- th- I'm just telling you the first part. The first part is the the growing part. But yeah, no, they were very meticulous. Uh, that's all they had. They didn't have a lot of money, and um, so was it a generational th- thing? Had they learned through the generations? Did it go way back? Was everybody a, a, a farmer in your family? Yeah, they, it, it, but it, it was not just being a farmer. It was the, um, the the attentiveness to detail, the pride, because not every, for example, you know, I grew up with people making wine, and everybody thinks that every Italian mother knows how to cook. Uh, well, they, they do know how to cook, but they're not necessarily great cooks, and nor does nor everybody know how to make wine well. But how do you know if you've got good taste or not, good sense of taste? Like, how do you know if you've got, you know, if you're receptive to flavors or not? You can only taste what you can taste, right? Correct. It t- you have to go out into the world mm. and learn and see and, and, ex- and experiment. I'm fortunate that I grew up around people that were just fanatical about uh the quality of the food that they had they didn't care about their you know their home i mean it was nice it was clean they didn't care about outwardly possessions um you know if i asked my mother for a new pair of shoes or toys forget it the only things that she spent money on were books and food you know we were we were eating high quality food and we rarely ate out at restaurants so what happens is you're right about um how do you know what you're eating? So I had friends from, I'll just stick to Italy, for example. I, I grew up with people from all Western Europe, um, all, all parts of Western Europe, but they, uh, everyone's father made wine from, and they're all from either the Northern Italy, Central Italy, or Southern Italy. And some of it was horrific. Mm. It was just pure vinegar, <laughs> but they loved it because that's the what they grew up tasting. Right, that's what you used to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so I... Um, uh, again, I just got lucky that I happened to grow up in that world. Then I started working in the high-end restaurants. And then I had a couple uncles who owned uh, fine dining establishments. And so they helped refine my palate and teach me about what was good, what was bad, et cetera. You know, I remember when I first started to be a little bit successful, I, you know, I thought I had arrived and I remember reading the Wine Spectator and, uh, you know, they were, did the reviews and I'd, I'd go out and buy the wine. And, uh, and I was so eager to, like, you know, tell my uncle, look at what I bought. I had this wine. And he just looked at me and said, anybody can do that. You know, like anybody can just read a list and go spend a bunch of money. He said, you want to impress me? Go find a good wine for under $10 a bottle. Because they're out there, right? <laughs> they're out there. Wow. And I took from then on <laughs> through Wine Spectator in the garbage because he said, this is the real challenge. Go find 
go you know study go go pay attention and so so how do you find how do you find good wine then because i am a wine snob like i love red wine but i would generally um subscribe to the idea that the more expensive it is the better quality wine i'm going to get so how no. do you so how do you go about finding great wines? is it just like trial and error or is it is there something you should look out for okay let me help you because this Please. is one area you so um wine is uh the price of wine is reflective of its availability, not mm, its quality. Okay. okay. So if there's the, the the fewer amount of cases available, the wine will be more expensive. But it's does it's not reflective of its quality. Now, generally, it tends to be a better quality. So how do you find it? A lot of it's trial and error. There is you have to find a wine purveyor, uh, you know, or liquor store that does wine tasting, and someone that's passionate. I'm lucky here in Costa Mesa. Uh, there is a, uh, a liquor and wine store that's been around since the 50s or 60s, and they will do, they have a, a machine where you can sample, you can buy an ounce, for example, or two ounces. Uh, and so what they will do is they will sample um, and give you descriptions of different wine. So you may have an option of, you know, 10 different wines that you can buy and not spend more than you could sample all of them and spend $10, for example, before buying the bottle going, oh, you know, oh, I spent $40 on this bottle. It's terrible. You know, so um, that's one way where you it's just, almost better to blind test, isn't it? Because if you've got the, the figure of how much the bottle costs in your head, then maybe that's going to is going to persuade you one way or another. But if you don't know what's what, then you literally are relying on your taste buds. Absolutely. I will tell you this. I learned this part from my father. So my father really didn't drink alcohol, but he just he couldn't for health reasons. Um, but he had a great palate because he, too, grew up making wine. And he taught me, you know, he'd have certain friends come over that knew nothing about wine. They were Canadian and they were beer drinkers. And he would always tell them, don't bring them the good stuff. <laughs> and so he said, watch, just tell them it's good. And they'll think it's good. He was great at, at presenting. So he would put wine. He did this sometimes. He would keep a, a bottle, uh, the, you know, the label and the bottle of an expensive wine. And he'd put his homemade wine in it. And he'd say, okay, I'm, I'm opening this for you guys. <laughs> and he would do a great show of it. Now, don't drink this too fast because, you know, there's not another one. And I would just sit and watch. And, you know, you'd see four grown men go, this is fantastic. Yeah, which it and probably it, was. <laughs> it was. But, mm. again, the presentation of it, there's a reason why they spend billions of dollars in marketing and advertising. Yeah. You know, alcohol and liquor, They it's it's... People it's do. People judge the book by its cover. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So I've done it. I've done that. I actually tried it, his trick later on in life with cognac, and I did it with uh, my uncles who who they didn't really. The Italians generally don't tend to drink a lot of uh, high spirits or mm. liquors. They'll have mm. some, but again, it was something that was re reserved for special occasions or people who had more money. So I, at Christmas time, I would go home and I would generally buy an expensive bottle of cognac, and uh, you know just to share with my uncles. I always appreciated their company and aunts, mm. and um, they got used to you know they said this is great. They had never tried anything near it in their lifetime. <laughs> so after a couple of years of that, I said I I just they, I know they don't know what they're talking about, mm. and they don't they don't know the difference, and so. 
with my father. I said, let's play, a, let's try something. And they bought a, just a cheap bottle of brandy and put it in the, exp <laughs> the expensive Remy Martin uh, XO. And I said, uh, you know, let's go try it. And said, so, you know, this is fantastic. They didn't know the difference. Mm. They didn't know the difference between a you know $20 bottle and a $200 bottle. Mm. So um, yeah, you can do that. I don't like doing those, but it's just funny at times. Absolutely. So I don't want people to think if you come to my house, I'm duping you. <laughs> Spiking us. <laughs> yeah, but no, you asked me about what is it about the cooking process? Well, there's a front, that front end of the, you know, or the initial parts of growing. And, but then when you're cooking, for me, I like, it's just a meditative process where you're, you know, cleaning, chopping, organizing, and, and, um, uh, I like it. Sometimes I have music on, sometimes it's just very quiet. And I find it, I, I, I don't know, I just seem to relax doing it. And then it's, it's also a challenge trying to see, can I actually do this? You know, there was, I don't, I don't think I ever made an Indian dish 20 years ago. Yeah. But now over, over the, you know, I was traveling a lot. I was always on the road 200 days a year or more eating at restaurants. And so I, I took pleasure in not going to a restaurant. So let me just recreate stuff I liked when I went out. And that's what I've done over the past few years. Yeah. Do you, are you adventurous with your cooking? Or do you just, are you a creature of habit? You know, do you just make the same thing over and over, the thing that works, your go-to dish? No, I will try whatever. I, 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 would, I would do more if my wife ate more. She won't eat any cute animals. You know, like, <laughs> so like rabbits far too cute for her. Pigs so are a little bit too smart, so no pork. So it's yeah. snake curry tonight then? Yeah. No, no. Those, I've eaten snake. I've eaten snake oh. in China. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it was, um, it's like they say, it, it's not like chicken. I don't, I think people just say that. But I went into the store, the store. I went into a restaurant in Nanchang, China in 1999. And I, I, it looked like a the foyer looked like a pet store, because they have all the the, the animals live, and they break them into category oh poisonous God. and non poisonous. So they had snakes, poisonous, non snakes, frogs, turtles, uh, and such. And you pick you pick which one you want to eat. It, and, sounds, uh, it sounds absolutely preposterous to me, but that is their way of life, isn't it? That's their culture going back thousands of years. How they do it. Yeah, they, 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 God bless the Chinese, they will eat everything. And, uh, so, and, they, and they, they, they peel it by, they kill it and peel it by your table uh, side to make, to ensure that that's what you're eating. Well, it's like you've, you, you, I've, sure grown, you've so, been, I've grown such a healthy audience of vegan followers and they're all just switching off by the drugs. Everyone's turning off. Yeah. <laughs> no, we can talk about that too. Um, well, this is the reality of a good portion of the world. Uh, I'm, I'm fully a proponent. Like I, uh, see, I grew up with people that lived on the land and respected the land. Nothing went wasted. So there was apps that that's part of when I say I open up the pantry in the fridge and take, you know, take what's there. It's because I absolutely hate wasting food. Yeah, so, I'm the same. yeah, whether it comes from like yesterday, we have several lemon trees. I was, you know, frantically picking lemons before it rained. And, um, you know, we don't, I just grew up in a world where like if the lemon or well, apple is bruised, you don't throw that away. You just cut off the bruised part and you, you save the rest. And so, and uh, so I don't, if, if an animal is like, you know, we used to go to the market and get a chicken on a Saturday and butcher it. We'd eat every part of that chicken, you know? So you don't, that's, that's to me, that's 
fine. I mean, it was, that's what they did to live. And, um, you know, of course we ate mostly grains and vegetables, but um, every culture is different. You know, and dude, I was- I, it is so true. And, and I have to say, I think this is critical what we're talking about. But if you look at the broader picture of this, it's about people agreeing to disagree. And I think that's one of the biggest problems in the world right now that there's so many, and I think social media is really part of the problem. There's so many people who have these opinions and they're inflexible with their opinions. So if you're not with them, you are against them. And social media sort of facilitates that because you don't have to be accountable. You don't have to be there in the flesh. You can say what you think, fire it out into the ether, be as inflexible as you want. And, you know, there is there is no accountability. I What you've just described to me about people's food habits in China it makes my stomach turn but at the same time i feel like i have to be flexible enough to accept that as a human being otherwise how are we all going to get on yeah you had i think i wrote about it in in uh, goliath um my experience in mongolia in, in outer mongolia um so you know i had done a lot of reading about the the mongols and the kazakhs and what grace great horsemen they were and their love of land, it was called the land of no fences. And um, I love that bit yeah. as well of the book, it's wonderful. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, no, it's okay. So I remember that, that I described that, I did that on purpose because it was um, a, a, an important lesson for me where I showed up and the first meal that they served was horse. And I, you know, it was disgusting. It was just absolutely disgusting. Like well, covered wow. in mucus or something. Yeah, well, that was the the owner, the, owner, the, the head of the family wiped his and, hand before he gave it to everybody. Yeah, wow. that made it even more disgusting. He would, he, <laughs> you know, they, they just put a plate of boiled horse, and I just thought, oh wow, okay, we're going right into this. Wow, I've been here, you know, exactly an hour, and this is what we're doing. But and, as you, you say, know, that's he, how they've survived. They survive by eating things like that, I suppose. They. This is what was fascinating. So at the time, I actually think I was mostly a vegetarian. And, uh, you know, exercising, drinking water, all these wonderful things. And uh, I show up out there and they've been there for thousands of years. And the, they didn't, there was not a vegetable to be found. Wow. You know, I was out there for a couple of weeks and there was not one vegetable. Why? They because it was so cold. They, they don't eat it. Or something. They, they right. don't eat it. And I, we'd walk by and I'd, I'd, you know, ask them what it was like in the summertime. And they said, oh, there's so many fish here. You, you, you can just stick your hand in the stream and pick it out. And I said, why don't you, you know, preserve? Because they had a, a separate building uh, that was essentially a refrigerator. So they would butcher their animals before the winter came. And they, w- they just put it in the building. And so I, I won't show you those pictures. But they preserve, for example, like the blood of the animals that they butcher why? Because there's there's times in um, that the, the temperature can drop to like 80 below zero, and they have sheep and goat that they have to keep alive. So what they do is they bring the frozen blood, defrost it, and uh, have the the goats and sheep drink it to stay alive. They bring them actually inside their mud hut, but they they said no no we don't we don't we don't eat fish we don't like it. And they said how about birds? You know I just started asking questions and I said. Oh, bad luck to eat birds, you know, no chickens, no, none of that. And, and vegetables, um, I guess it's just too short of a growing period. Um, I mean, I don't know, quite frankly, how the horses and other animals survive because there is so little moisture, in, 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 you know, anywhere. There's there, the part that I was, uh, was the near the Altai Mountains, and it's essentially desert. And I just wondered, how did they survive? They were just 
chomping on you know bits of hay that were just as dry as could be. Um, so th th there was no water. So there's no running water. They had a well where they drew some water to boil the food, but their principal diet consists of meat and cheese. That's it. Uh, I, br I, brought, I brought raw garlic with me uh, from my garden and hot chili peppers. Just thinking, because I knew that their food would probably be bland. And I thought, if I'm stuck, at least I can put some garlic pepper on it. <laughs> and um, I brought it there and uh, I didn't do it the first night. I just ate the boiled raw horse uh, that the owner had put his, wiped his nose and handed it to me with his dirty hands. But <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I put the story in there to say, well, who am I to judge what they do? You know, right, they can, right. like, th that's how they live. That's how they survive. Let me be respectful of their way of life. I, I shouldn't come here and say, why aren't you eating salad? You know? Yeah, straight away, yeah. like yeah, imposing your morals on it. You, you, but, you know, no. I find that so... In, that, another one of the great chapters of the book, I really think you talked about cutting the one with your great uncle. I think that's wonderful because it goes into such details, one of my favourite parts of the book. And this too, your trip to Mongolia, where you're going soul-searching trip to Mongolia. You know, it reminded me of... Those people of Mongolia reminded me of the indigenous American peoples and right. indigenous tribes, people who have a symbiotic relationship with, with the planet, really. They're leaving right. no trace... They're, they're nourishing the earth. I mean, of course, these are cultures that, that go back to pre-industrial, pre-industrialization times where, you know, it's probably easier to pollute less. But there was a real respect and love of their environment, wasn't there? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and again, I'm fortunate that I grew up with, you know, my father wouldn't let us have a, a dog or a cat. He just, he's, no, 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 animals that need to roam. You can't bring them inside or leave them in a yard. That's not right. He would. He was had such a calm presence that you know he would get any wild bird or animal to eat out of his hand, and um, he even at that time he um, no no there was a lot of people you asked about pesticides, and you know these were the the seventies when the Miracle Grow was developing and all these wonderful chemicals, and uh, you know people were out there eagerly you know, spraying their lawns and their gardens and tomatoes and carrots would grow to giant size. Um, and he'd say, what's the point? You're putting the garbage back then. You know, he said, I don't need to be a scientist to know that this isn't good for me or the planet. One of my favorite things that he said, someone had brought over some, um, it was the middle of summer, some plums or grapes that were bought at a store. And uh, they asked him, you know, would you like to eat some? And uh, or my mother had asked him, would you like some? And he looked and he said, the bugs aren't eating them. <laughs> and, I, and, I looked at him and he goes, if I, if the bugs won't eat them, why should I eat them? He goes, that tells you. He goes, if there's no no insects around, it, there's chemicals that's keeping them away. That, that why should I put that in my body? But that goes into that mentality of respecting. Um, you know, what's out there. Like, for example, the Mongols, I just remembered, um, there was a kid's game that they played uh, that was similar to dice, uh, but they played it with sheep's teeth. And so I brought a couple of them back to friends. Yeah, it's the, to you and I, it's like, oh my God, it's disgusting. What are you playing with the teeth of a... But yet, you know, people here will eat jello and they're made out of, I don't know if they're made in the teeth, but they're made out of the bones. But they were not being wasteful. They said, "What are we going to do with these things? You're not just going to throw them in the, in the you know the middle of the yard." 
Yeah, so, we'll, we'll just go and buy something off Amazon, which we'll break or won't use, be using within three months, and then we'll buy something else, we'll upgrade, you know, that pure materialism which is going on in the Western world. Yeah, well, I, you know, as I had experienced with them, they had they had one of everything, you know. There wasn't, nothing went wasted. They, I mean, they, they, they didn't, because they, they, they moved, this notion that they moved night to night is, is, is incorrect that some people may have that, you know, nomads are always on the road. Um, maybe some are, but this particular family uh, and culture, they, they had one home for the winter, one home for the summer uh, home. It was one was that there were huts, you know, they weren't yurts, but these were essentially little um, like one, one or two bedroom uh, or one or two room mud uh, dwellings. Let's for whole say. families. So when I was there, there was seven of us. Right. <laughs> and so, and then, for example, the heating, um, the grandmother generally controls the oven. And the, the fuel source was the dung of all the animals. Mm. So outside, it, there was mounds of, you know, the dung separated by, you know, horse, sheep, camel, and then... You and know, it all had different uses depending on what poo it was. You're right. No, it burns at different speeds. Gotcha. And wow. So, so the lambs like the fire lighter. That's the fire lighter dung. And yeah, then... I don't know. <laughs> I do know. I do know that camel is the slowest burning and the most prized. Wow. So, so, so the grandmother, this was a very important role because that fuel source needed to last them all winter or they would die. They would freeze to death. And with the, so would the animals. So she did the, you know, the, the mixture to start the fire and it got lit once a night. Once it went out, that's it. You, did, you didn't relight because you were cold. So right around two in the morning when it's 34 or 35 below zero, it was cold. And, uh, but yeah, again, respecting how, you know, they're living off of the land. We, we, we here in Western society, and, and unfortunately in many societies, in my opinion, forgot that we are nature there's this notion that nature's over there and we're in here it's like no no we are nature we just put ourselves inside we're the ones who separated ourselves and and said we need more and more and more how much do you really need you know how much do you really need and, and at what, what point does that excess start making you unhappy rather than more happy? Do you know what I mean? Does it make you any happier to have all this excess, to have all these materials which you have no respect for? No, well, some people, I may, I, they might. For me, I, um, I, I found that, so, you know, I grew up poor and, uh, you know, you, you look to acquire things because comfort, this is what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, you want more well, comfort in your life. Well, but you're told this is the path. Yeah. You know, this is the path. This is, this is the, these are the symbols of success. So I remember. Anybody who's read your book, anybody that does read your book will probably remember that and think he didn't follow the path at all. (laughs) No, no, no. I I, I took, uh, because of of a lot of adversity that came and knocked me around, but I'll give you just small examples. I remember distinctly, like the first time I bought a very expensive pair of dress shoes. I thought, wow, these are great. I had the, it, it took all of about three hours before I scratched them. <laughs> I was going yeah. to get in a cab and it like cut the leather on one side. <laughs> I, Shit. <laughs> Same thing, car. I remember when I first bought a very nice car. I mean, within a day, big scratch along the side. And 
I, 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 in the moment I'd get angry and then I'd catch myself and say, you see, the universe is trying to teach you something. These things can be damaged. These things can be released. I love the idea that the things that you own end up owning you. I just love that concept right. because it's just it's just a fool's errand, really, isn't it? Having all, you know, acquiring all these materials, which you think you're going to absolutely love. You never love them as much as you think you're going to. And then, as you say, they become tainted and that just ruins your life. <laughs> well, they become, they, they become tainted, but there's another phenomenon. It's where all your attention goes. Yeah. Yeah. You you know oh my god if you fill if you fill your home with expensive furniture or paintings or devices and you know gizmo like I hate gadgetry you know my my wife loves you know gadgets she that's just her she loves playing around with things and she always says don't you want this for the kitchen don't you want this for the kitchen nope I have a knife <laughs> I have a knife that's it I'm fine and and um, well because again I just I've already been down that path. And I've, and I've seen that, what is the difference between an inexpensive pair of pants and a very expensive pair of pants? It's the cost. <laughs> They're right. still pants. They're and, still again, <laughs> and again, I want to say another really interesting point from your trip to Mongolia was that you'd bought all this ridiculously expensive survival yeah. gear in the West, which was utterly useless when you got there. Absolutely, completely inferior to the stuff that was given to you by the locals. Yes. that And again, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're remembering these because... I put those in because they were like wide awake lessons where I spent months looking for the right jacket and the right thermal this and that, especially the boots. The boots were the ones that flew because I needed them to be flexible because I was going to be in stirrups riding a horse every day. And I, they, I, I had to be prepared for 80 below zero. And, and the, the, you know, the, within minutes of being there, my toes were freezing. <laughs> Nothing was working. <laughs> And I said, I'm going to die out here. And I mean, what this stuff is garbage. And I immediately just looked around and said, well, these people have survived here. What are they doing? And uh, I went and, and bought a pair of boots uh, for $20. So I went from, I think at the time it was like $400 for my boots, four or $600. And I bought a $20 pair of boots, which was probably expensive. You know, they, they probably overcharged me. But um, from the back of some truck, they were made with simple uh, leather uh, and uh, fur, you know, goat fur in the uh, inside and wood heels. And I, I literally the rest of the time wore one pair of thin socks and my feet were as toasty warm as could be. <laughs> Never had to think about it again. Mad, isn't ja it? Jacket, hat, same thing. Everything else was useless. And I had said to myself, from now on, wherever I go, I'm gonna just whatever. I'm gonna show up, and whatever the locals are doing, that's mm. what I will do. Yeah. So. Such a good lesson. Yeah, but even and and I remember I, I um, even the medicine. I I was fortunate that at that time I had a uh, um, an acupuncturist who had been an MD uh, at the Cleveland Clinic, and he uh was unhappy with western style of medicine and then he embarked on a journey to become an acupuncturist and study eastern medicine and he studied with some of the doctors of the dalai lama he had studied in africa he had studied uh, with, you know, in many different countries so before i went on this trip i said can you uh help me prepare possible medicines because i was in a very remote area and uh, I, I didn't, you know, it was conceivable that I could fall off a horse, break a leg or whatever. So he said, okay, no problem. So he prepared a, 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 um, an entire, you know, let's say kit 
of uh, antibiotics and pain medicine, et cetera, and, uh, and other medicines. And he said, okay, here's a the paper, tells you what to do and when to use it, but don't use it. <laughs> so you're confusing me. What do you, why, why are you giving this to me? He goes, this is just in case of, of an, a true emergency and you find yourself alone. I said, well, what do you want me to do then? And he said, if you become ill, he goes, you trust the local medicine people. Whoever the, you know, the, the, whoever's the, you know, the, the medical doctor or, or chief of, of you know, medicine and health in the community, do whatever they say. And okay, I trusted this doctor. His name is Dr. Grotti. I think he still practices in, in Ohio. And uh, sure enough, uh, I don't know, maybe four, four or five days in, um, I got sick and I didn't know what was wrong. I learned later that actually it wasn't until I came back to America, the water they were boiling in, they were taking it from the, a well and the animals had been defecating nearby. And so the, the well had parasites and because it was so cold, they were not, the, the, they were boiling the water, but it wasn't reaching high enough temperatures to kill the parasites. So their immune systems were able to handle it. Mine gotcha. wasn't. Mm. So I got very sick and I said, I don't feel so good. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm five hours from nowhere. And uh, I just remembered what the doctor told me. And um, so the grandmother and uh, the mother of the eagle hunter, the, the, my host, uh, said, just sit here. And they went out and they picked a variety of different weeds or they gathered it from, from some, someplace. They made a tea and, and they stripped me down. <laughs> First, they, they stripped me. They took off all my clothes. They took me down to my underwear, took uh, alcohol um, that they had, like rubbing alcohol, or I think it was a vodka that I brought. Because I, you know, you just you know, you never want to be without alcohol somewhere, and so <laughs> they, they, they rubbed me down with the, the the alcohol, and then they said, "Drink this." I said, "Okay." It smelled terrible, but I drank it. Within seconds, I was vomiting nonstop. So I I vomited, and then passed out. I woke up the next morning. I'm covered in maybe six blankets. Like they, their blankets were like carpets. And I thought, I think I feel a little bit better. And uh, sure enough, there was grandma and uh, the wife. Here, drink this. They had a, 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 the tea again. I said, no, no, no. <laughs> I said, no, no, I'm not. I thought it was going to make me vomit again. And my translator said, no, no, it's different. It's, it's different. Just, I said, okay, trust. So I drank it. Lights out. Right. <laughs> I passed out again. And uh, I woke up probably six, seven hours later, and I felt great. Amazing. And so, no. Do you know what was in these things? Not a clue. Not right. a clue. There's it a real leap there. of faith on your part then to take it. Yeah, yeah, I know. I just, there comes time, you know, you're, it, again, so often we're fighting against our own thoughts and our yeah. own preconceived notions and habits. Great just, point. Just, great just point. take a deep breath. They're human beings. Yeah. human beings you and you probably got a sense straight away of whether they were good or bad human beings yeah i was sleeping next to them they were mm. making me dinner you know they weren't i remember a friend telling me dom you're going out there these are nomads they they might kill you and uh, you know they he had planted that seed in my head and i you know i had to buy a hunting knife and everything when i went out there and i i don't hunt i grew up 
periodically hunting with my father and um, but you know he stopped hunting etc they did it for survival but i remember the first two nights i was there I, I had my knife in my hand as i slept and i had it under you know my pillow just in case i said who knows maybe these people will you know kill me rob me rape me and then i quickly realized i'm the most dangerous guy here <laughs> you know no, nobody's gonna these are absolutely peaceful you know loving you know caring heart you know uh, people that live in harmony with nature and each other. And so, it, it, again, it's the, I'm glad I was able to experience these different perspectives. And I think you, you, I put right after that uh, my experience with the Benedictine monks. Yeah, which, I definitely want to talk about that one too. Yeah, well, there, see, there, is a, there was an interesting phenomenon. I went in thinking, oh, these benevolent human beings. This was in K Kentucky, right? <laughs> Right, right. And these were a, essentially Trappist monks. You described them as commensurate, similar to, to, to Trappist monks. They are. They, they have different names. They're Cistercian monks, Benedictine monks, uh, Trappist monks. They come from, I believe, uh, the, the same same order, uh, which originated, I believe it was in Italy, in uh, Monte Cassino, which is about two hours south of Rome. Um, and it was it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mountain where prior to the Italians using it as a spiritual uh, center or area of prayer. The Greeks uh, inhabited it for, I don't know how many hundreds of years. So, um, but yeah, they, they, they have a, um, essentially they take a vow, uh, not a vow, excuse me, a practice of, uh, you know, work, obedience, and silence. Um, and it's, it's not a vow of silence. They just believe in not using more words than necessary. So they they try not to speak, you know, but they, you know, they will, they will speak. And then they have people that they designate to communicate with guests in the outside world. They rotate. But I remember after visiting there and going on retreats and, you know, trying to learn about going into prayer and going into silence. And I was not particularly religious. Um, I just found it fascinating, this way of life. And I was also interested in learning how to make cheese. Because every, Which they would never tell you, right? No. They, every <laughs> monastery around the world in this sect, they make something. They, 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 they try to be self-sustaining. So there's a monastery in upstate New York, for example, that uh, makes bread. Um, I believe there's one in, in Northern California somewhere that is, um, uh, they're, they're women. And I apologize. I don't, they're not monks. I forget what they're, what they're called. But they're of the same sect, and they make honey. They make honey and they sell it to the outside world. And then I think there's there's ones in Holland that make one of the famous and best beers in the world. Um, yeah. so they, they sell beer. And know? this is so, how they subsist, basically. This is how they make ends meet and, yeah, and how and, they continue their lifestyle. Yeah, they, they try to be self-sustaining and they, they, they make whatever money they can. And they, they what I found fascinating about them, uh, you know, there's many things, but they put they publish their financials right at the front door wow. of the you know you walk in and you know like you see Deloitte too sure you know whatever an account big accounting firm <laughs> and there's their financials and every complete penny transparency. is yes complete transparency and the all the money they they use as little as possible to to run their facilities and the rest goes to different charities and it's fantastic it's amazing yeah. and they invite anybody who wants to come in they will give room and board right and food absolutely 
Wow. That's, that, that and is you can only leave money. You're allowed to leave donations, but only anonymously. You slip it under a door or something, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's fast. I want to ask yeah. you about the week that you, you spent a week in isolation, didn't you, when you were there? Um, yeah, I visited three or four times, and then I went, uh, the one was in, one year I, I went uh, five or six days into the woods. They have 2,500 acres completely by myself. So what was that like? I've never spent six days completely on my own. How did that feel? You said every day was better than the last. And and not detached and and completely detached from the outside world. Hmm. So no phone, no television, no internet. Um, It was great. It was great. You, you, when I, uh, I'll start when I let, when you leave uh, uh, experiencing something like that, you realize how noisy the world is, not just in terms of volume, but how much, frenetic energy there is and i say that because the the moment i left and i got got it back into my car got under the highway i i i was overwhelmed my, my whole body was overwhelmed with uh, you know the stimulation i had to turn off the radio turn off everything because you know your my blood pressure actually started to increase because I, I was not used to uh, you know i had been in essentially a sensory deprivation or not, uh, not complete sensory deprivation, a different type of sensory uh, awareness where I was listening to the wind. I was listening to birds and I was watching snowfall. I was looking at the stars because I could actually see the stars because there wasn't many homes around. And you, you start to relax and see how much more in tuned uh, you are with nature. And again, this is, I just, it's stuck in my head. We are nature. We just forget it. We, you know, we think we have to go someplace to experience nature. We are actually we're part of nature. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it was a, it was a, it was. I, and and I, what the only mechanical thing I took with me other than uh, my car uh, was a camera. So I took a lot of great pictures. I don't know if I sent you some of them. Maybe um, not sure. Not recently. I mean, you probably would have said yeah. some a while back. I think a while back when we when we conversed a while back. But um, just sounds like a fantastic experience. Would you recommend that to people? Or do you think you have to be a certain type of people to be in your own head for uh, and in nature like that, isolated for six days? I think you should take it in stages. Like mm-hmm. I took it. They offered it to me because I had, they just I don't know. Maybe it was something in my character, and I had spent I'd been there several times. They explained to me at the time that this they offer three day and five day retreats generally, and they, they, you stay in a common area with other people. You have your own room, your own bathroom, own key. Everything is very private. But they said this is the general phenomena of what happens with probably ninety eight percent of the people that go there. The first day that they get there, they sleep. It's so quiet because there's no electronics allowed and no talking allowed. They they just you know you you fall into a deep sleep, and so most people sleep ten twelve or longer, and they wake up and they're excited they're refreshed they're renewed, and then they get scared and they leave, and what happens is in the silence, and this <laughs> happened to me right it happened to me, it, it, you what happens is all the distractions are removed. So things you don't want to think about come up. Wow. Yeah, your subconscious says, hey, now's a good time. Wow. Let's bring this up to the <laughs> conscious mind and well, let's deal with it. We got people are cooking for us. It's peaceful. Yeah. And and what happens is, you know, I, and it happened to me. I had this, 
this terrible memory come up. I, the first day I slept a, a, a great deal. And then the second day I was like, whoa, where did that come from? And uh, I worked through it. And then it was later on that one of the monks explained to me that that's what happens. Most people get scared, don't want to confront the, the difficult issues in, in, in them or, or their, their current life or their past life. Um, and they leave. And they, 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 they go back to the world of distraction. And so when you ask me, is it, you know, trying to pray or stay silent in a world, truly in a world of silence, uh, is, is difficult. I recommend you try it because it's, it, 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 it will make you stronger. So, so, so it did make you stronger. Yeah. It, it actually becomes addictive. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, go on. It becomes addictive because it's so your body and your mind are so relaxed. And I, I think I, I started to tell you that the monks, you know, at first I saw them, I, I still do see them with a, uh, um, you know, a level of or degree of reverence, but I was holding them in high esteem. And I remember one of the monks telling me, you know, we lead a very selfish life as monks. And I was stunned by that phrase, it's selfish, but you, but you're, you're here, you've, you're, you know, you just, you pray and you work. And by the way, they're vegetarian. So they, there's, you know, there's no meat to around or fish. Uh, they, they, most of the food that they serve, they grow the vegetables and fruits. Um, and uh, he said, yeah, because I don't have a job. You know, I don't have to pay bills. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have family tugging and pulling. I don't have neighbors. I don't have, and he went down the whole list of what a normal life might be. And, and by the time he got to the bottom, he's, he goes, oh, it's just me and God. I just pray and, you know, do my, my tasks here. And yeah. And yeah. I, by the time by, by the time you got to the bottom, I thought, yeah, it is pretty selfish. <laughs> you know? And also, I suppose a lot of it is they're trying to figure out their purpose and the, the meaning of, of life and stuff. So they're, they're very, very, very much focusing on their own relationship with the world. And I also love in the book you, you talk about that they're basically spending their time trying to commune with God, trying to reach that zone, that higher level. And I found that yeah. really interesting. You know, hours and hours of meditative thought in order to try and reach some kind of higher consciousness. Yeah, but and they do that. That is, I think, the primary goal. But they concurrently they say state that their their outward purpose is to uh, provide a place of of respite for weary travelers. You know, without judgment, and the the prayer part of the prayer process is. You know, you can send in prayers to them and say, my mother's dying of, of such and such. Would you pray for her? And um, they will. They believe, you know, I remember that it was a few years after 9-11 happened and uh, someone had asked them, you know, the whole world was falling down and, you know, America was under attack. And, and what were you doing? You were just praying. And it's, the person obviously was being cynical of them. And the, the monks said, yeah, that's what we do. We pray for the world. You know, we pray, we pray. To, they believe energetically that they're sending that, that energy and that goodwill of, you know, from their perspective, God, from, you know, non-denominational people or, non, you, know, uh, you know, from the universe. They're, they're sending this goodwill, uh, you know, towards the rest of us. 
Yeah. So there, there is a purpose, you know. Yeah, they sound like amazing people. And I think they're searching for what we're all, like, outwardly, whether or not we let other stuff get in the way, we, we would all sort of suggest that what we're searching for in our life is, you know, a life of happiness, of, of you know, without anger and without sort of resentment and, and, a, and a life of altruism. We're all sort of, we all claim to be on that sort of path, don't we, whether or not we ever get there. It's something that we all aspire to. Well, I don't know. I don't know about the altruistic part. I know a lot of selfish people, so they're, 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 not, not everybody has that kind heart and want, wants to share. Maybe they had it in them. Maybe it got lost somewhere along the way. Um, you know, I, I did, I, I did a, a psychological test probably seven years ago. I had done, I don't know, seven, eight of these uh, when I was working actively in crisis management because I was trying to find profiles of candidates to do that type of work. And the reason being is because I, I kept hiring people who were very talented, uh, but they kept falling apart on the job. They couldn't handle the stress. So I would take the test first and uh, because I was comfortable with the high degree of stress and then use that as a, a base model. In any event, I was asked to take this test by an executive recruiter, uh, and I said, sure, no problem. And I took it, he called me up, and uh, he works exclusively with uh, you know, C-suite uh, uh, people, you know, chief executive officer, chief financial officer, et cetera. And I, he told me he had my results, and I said, um, okay, what do you see? And he said, well, you have the absolute profile of a CEO. Goes, you know, you're 98% you're, you're there. And I said, what's the 2% that's missing? He said, you have one quality that is problematic. And I think we'll give you, we'll, we'll trouble you. He goes, I'm pretty certain it's troubled you and it will continue to trouble you. And now I'm, I'm really intrigued. Said, what is it? He said, You're, uh, you have too much empathy. <laughs> and I said, All right, wait a minute, are you kidding me? I said, come on. I thought, you know, this can't be. I said, you're telling me none of these CEOs or, you know, chief, chief executive, whatever's have empathy. He said, no, they don't. He goes, they're very successful have zero empathy. He goes, they fake it, but oh. they don't have it. But when and the metric, said, when the metric, when the bottom line is margin and, you know, giving money back to this, to the shareholders, then empathy sort of gets in the way i'd imagine now it's why b corporations are so cool right because they go they play by a completely different rule book right well this is why i have struggled in the corporate world yeah because i i am really <laughs> i'm really talented at making money i just actually give a shit about people and so you know that's i, I used to tell people I, I mean i've watched for decades people fake it you know the whole baloney of you're in our thoughts and prayers and oh we should help the environment and Bullshit. I just see how you, you, if you really want to see what a company does, just follow their money, just follow their actions. It tells you everything about them. But th in this particular instance, when you're saying that all of us want to be altruistic, I know <laughs> there's a lot of people who just want, you know, they're stuck in this. I just want to take care of me. I just want to take care of me and I don't want to go beyond that. I wish it could be more. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote Corporate Undertaker and this book is, uh, you know, I hope COVID calms down and I can get on the road and go speak. I'm hoping to go to business schools, et cetera, to show 
younger people, both male and female, uh, men and women, that they're, I don't want to use the word synergistic, but we're tied to the rest of the community. We're tied to each other. The words and actions that we use as human beings absolutely affect other human beings and, and things, you know, that you can't, we're so, I think we've become so inundated, as you mentioned earlier, with social media, with TV and politicians. You know, politics has become a sport now. You know, it's, 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 it's no longer that thing that used to be over there and everybody thought politicians were just full of it and you kind of ignored. It's a sport, you know, you know which side are you on, which team are you on? And, you know, the marketing people and the consulting people and public relations people around them are, are work frantically coming up with catchphrases uh, to, to see, you know, which will latch, the public will latch onto. And what happens is it's a dehumanizing process. We forget to be, we, we lose the ability to think on our own, to express our own true sentiments. And, and we, we lose the ability to actually receive what, what actually may be happening in the world. And so we were just, we're just everything's like one big commercial. So you become desensitized to you know the the entire surroundings, and so when CEO when I hear you know that that's probably one of the most brutal statements I've ever heard. All these the business leaders have no empathy. Um, just think about that for a second. You know, seventy percent of the economy, for example, in America is run by consumers. It's it's it, we're, we're you know so. If 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 seventy percent of the leaders of these these companies have no empathy, what does that say for humanity? Wow, well, I mean, in this area, that's where we're at, though, isn't it? That is the status quo. It's so worrying. The planet's completely buggered. Um, humans are buggered. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're not leading world at all. People, that we're not leading the world forward, are we? In 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 a meaningful or or good way at this point in time. No, Oliver, I will tell you. And we're you, leaving I, such a bad legacy for the future generations. We're leaving so, them to, to, to clean up all the mess. Right. So I, the, the past, there was an 18-month period of time in the past two years. It started right before COVID where I was pleading with, I live in, Ur, in Newport Coast, Irvine area, pleading with Irvine, the community of Irvine, to get rid of leaf blowers, okay? Just, or get rid of gas leaf blowers. They are so gas, pointless. They are make me crazy. I mean, they have a point to get rid of leaves, but come on, use a brush. What's wrong with the brush? Right. So, it is the so, biggest waste of, of fuel and just energy that I've ever seen in my life. It creates noise pollution. It emits so, many, so much, uh, you know, uh, carbon. It creates dust. Yeah. It's just, it, and it does nothing. Yeah. So it is the ultimate I, caricature of materialism, isn't it, really? Right. They walk where I live, you know, here, I think it exists in San Francisco as well. There's housing associations, you know, and the HOAs, you know, everyone has an HOA and you pay money to them. And they, the landscapers groom obsessively. And I would just, after a few years of being here, I said, why does it need to look like a country club? Why leaves on the sidewalk is okay, you know? <laughs> it's <laughs> nice. It looks good, in fact. Poor animals, like I said, yeah. they, they they come and they, they obsessively trim trees and 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 bushes, and the poor squ the squirrels and the birds. 
go running. They're, they don't know where to go. I mean, and I remember looking at my wife. I, said, I, you know, I bought bird feeders, a couple of them, because I felt bad. I said, "There's no food. There's no remedy. Such a good so they're, point. They're not Such even where to hide." Yeah. And I put out water for, and it doesn't rain here, so I had to put out water. So anyway, I said, I, I pleaded with them. I, you know, I, I contacted the mayor, city council, <laughs> so environmental department, <laughs> landscapers. I started with the landscape, the HOAs. And my wife thought I was just losing my mind, and I was. And I would say, just how about we take this? All the landscaping that you currently do, cut it in half. Just So instead of trimming the trees twice a year, trim them once. Instead of mowing the lawn every week, you know, because what they do is they come mow, trim, blow, okay? Hours and hours and hours everywhere you, you see these machines. And I said, just, just cut it in half. You'll save the money. And you know what? With that money, like, hey, plant trees, plant flowers, plant. And then I, and I, and I said, okay, if you can't do that, let's just move to electric because they're quieter and they're, and landscapers hate them because they're not as powerful, right. you know? So I, I, and I wrote impassioned letters and I went before the council and I had long meetings and emails and people were just getting frustrated with me. And I gave them examples of like Tokyo. I said, listen, you know, in Tokyo, 30 million people and they have public parks there and you can walk into these public parks and not see or hear one machine. What they do is they get senior citizens and they give them good old fashioned pruning shears, you know, and, and diff different handheld shears. And they, 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 and it, so it accomplishes multiple tasks. The senior citizens get to be social. They get to be active and, and they, they cultivate these beautiful parks where they're, you know, one by one, they're pruning flowers and trees uh, and, you know, raking leaves very patiently and quietly and the, 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 the rest of the society, the citizens get to walk in there and say, oh, it's very peaceful in a city of 30 million people. But the funny is thing it, about it is, the funny thing about it is it, the, the act of doing it in itself is nourishing for you. It's just like cooking. It's meditative to actually do things in the right way like that. I actually got out of San Francisco at the most grizzled time of COVID. And I live on the Monterey Peninsula now. So I'm a couple of hours closer to you. And I've got, oh, a, big, okay. and I've got a big garden. And I'm obsessed with gardening now. <laughs> and, oh, good for you. And everything that you're talking about is just really speaking to me because I love growing. I love doing things in the right way. Old school, you know, pruning and all that sort of stuff. It's wonderful. It gives you a real sense of being closer to nature and communing with nature again. Yeah, you're getting when you are when you are tilling soil, when you are touching plants, when your hands are in the earth and you're breathing that. You're you don't need to go to a gym. You don't need to. You, that is your a yoga. That is a yoga, and you're getting the energy from the earth and giving back to it. And there's something. You know, I used to love, well, I'd visit my father and my mother. And I, so one of the things I would do in the, I always loved the fall where they live. It was the perfect temperature. I would just lay in the grass in the evening because, you know, there was a time of year there was no mosquitoes, there's no flies, nothing's biting me. And, but it would just lay there and because I knew there was no chemicals. And, 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 you know, it, it's, re, it's, it's, it reinvigorates you and you feel peaceful. I'll give you another example. Actually, in, in that city where I grew up, Windsor, Ontario, um, they, oh, this is probably five, six years ago, they passed a law prohibiting uh, pesticides being used on lawns. 
And first people were in shock. Oh my God, I'm giving up my nice green lawn. Um, but they, they adapted. Um, and the reason they did it is, and it started with the public parks because people were walking their dogs and the dogs were eating pesticides, you know, they were eating, you know, they were constantly obsessed with killing weeds. You know, I don't know, I don't know who invented this notion that weeds, you know, got to get rid of the weeds, you know? And uh, um, so what they used instead is um, uh, vinegar, just, you know, uh, high powered vinegar with no chemicals in it at all. It does the same thing. Take some vinegar, you want to get rid of weeds, spray it on it. This way the animals don't get harmed. The soil itself gets to produce worms and bugs and whatever it does, because that's what you need to grow. You know, if you're, you're, you're gardening now, the, the, the topsoil on earth, once the tops, topsoil is the most uh, nourishing soil that you can have in terms of, uh, you know, growing things in it. Once that topsoil is gone, it's gone. There's no nutrients left. And most of the food that we're getting out of California and Mexico, because a, a tremendous amount of the produce for America is produced here. It's, it, there's nothing, there's nothing there. There's no, and you can, someone like me grew up eating, and I know there's millions of other people in the same place. There is no nutrients and no life force in those tomatoes or carrots or onions and lettuce. It's just not there. If I, I, I remember taking a trip to Uruguay uh, about six years ago, and you could see there were so many mosquitoes and bugs and worms and ants. An ecosystem. It was exactly, it was what Earth was supposed to be. I mean, I hate them. I hate bugs biting me, but um, it was it was beautiful to see because yeah. the soil was deep, deep black, rich. Wow. And you can just taste it. Their, their potatoes tasted better. Their wine tasted better. Uh, everything was just deeper and richer. But so you're quite a good country in terms of less pollution then, would you say? Because I've never been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot less. Mind you, a lot of it's. There's, they produce a lot of beef, so there's a lot of uh, okay. manure smell gotcha. in the air. Yeah. <laughs> but the, it's a it's a poorer country, but it's absolutely cleaner. Um, I, I don't recall any major industrial plants, uh, factories. That is, um, I, what I do remember is, you know, there's there's uh, schools of parrots and all kinds of. It, it felt a bit like a jungle but it, it's not a jungle it's just that the that the, the it was still an un, un, unspoiled environment so but um and they're very nice people they're actually very um progressive and liberal in their their thinking and um you know i think it's a really small of, company i think there's only like three million people in uruguay or something i think yeah, it's, uruguay. It's, small. It's, yeah. it's small but they had they, they adapted a, a lot of principles that were, you know, Central and South America were predominantly Catholic. And um, so they, they somehow broke away and got away from a lot of those, you know, uh, superstitions and preconceived notions of marriage, sexuality and things like that. So anyways, yeah. So I don't want to say too much because I don't want people to in case I could say something out of line <laughs> that, that, you know, <laughs> I know people get touchy about that. I, I could talk about everything, but as soon as you start talking about religion, 
people get touchy totally so. but but there are i mean i could waffle on with you absolutely ad infinitum but there are a couple of things i wanted to talk about and it's one of the main areas of your book basically the relationship that you have with your mother through your life and i um i've lost my dad uh, a few years ago and it has had a huge impact on my life you know he's a, he was a great a really important figure in my life and uh so i you know my condolences to you because i know that you lost your mom fairly recently but i, I suppose it's fair game to talk about this because it's sure. in your book sure. um uh, and the first section of the book, it goes into detail about your upbringing and the amount of physical abuse that you suffered as a kid. Most of the physical abuse that you suffered was at the hands of your mum, right? And, and, mm -hmm. and, with, and with her approval, teachers and other people um, mm -hmm. around you. And, and many years later, and I think this is probably, for me, it's the most you know important, significant part of the book. And it's very emotional. It's really difficult to read at times because, you know, I've got a one-year-old child and the idea of her, you know, I'm, I'm there to protect her. I'm supposed to be there to protect her. And so the idea of me, you know, abusing, physically abusing this kid who's, who's so vulnerable, it's unfathomable to me. And many years later, you confronted your mom about it. You asked why, why did it happen to me? Because it didn't even happen to your, 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 uh, your siblings either, did it? It was you because you were like the tear away. Mm -hmm. um, she broke down and she gave you her explanation of, you know, tried to explain to you why it came about and why it went on for so long. But what is it amazes me about the way that you talk about it in the book and the way that you are, your general disposition is you didn't seem angry about, I'm sure if like that had happened to me, I'd feel really angry about it. So can you expand upon that aspect of it? Well, yeah. And, and to, to, just to be clear, it didn't happen to her either. She was treated, right. um, a, you know, like a, a princess. Um, you know, she wasn't spoiled, but she was treated um, in a very loving and, and nurturing way. It was, um, you know, I, I didn't want to write about this, uh, but I, I <laughs> you've spoken with me enough to know that the moment I feel like I'm afraid of something or I feel like I shouldn't is the moment I need to, that means I need to do it. Face it. I need to face it. And I didn't want to write Corporate Undertaker either, um, but it turned out to help a, a lot of people. And, and I know it will continue because I've, I'm not done with that. Um, and the way this book originally came about from all the commentary that I received back after Corporate Undertaker, I thought people would be more intrigued with the business stuff, but it turns out people are more intrigued with the personal uh, aspect of it. And the co constant commentary was, you know, you gave us hope, you know, and, and how did you survive? And so when my mother passed away last year, I was already four months into writing a different book. <laughs> and uh, uh, it, 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 when she passed because of COVID and the, the, the regulations, I couldn't be at the funeral and I couldn't go back to Canada. Um, it, 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 it's okay. It, it's, so what happened is I started to think of the, the, the parallels that we had shared. And because the comments of you know, her life were, how did she survive as well? How did she live through all of these medical problems, et cetera? And um, so I said, let me just dig into this. So um, how I made, the, the question of how I made peace with all this is a mystery. <laughs> is a, it was a mystery as, you know, I've, I talk about my friend Brent Baum and mm. you've interviewed and, Brent, you know, I spent years talking with Brent, who was a trauma specialist, and I, you know, spent time talking with monks and and shaman and other people trying to figure out 
I had lived inside of me was a predominantly peaceful person. Um, I never went looking for a fight, um, but I was also someone who never walked away from one. And when I saw people in trouble, I would stick myself in the middle of it, trying to help them. And, and, and what I kept doing is recreating dangerous and, and, you know, sometimes violent situations where it's abnormal when, you know, someone tells you uh, a coup attempt is about to happen in Moscow. Uh, maybe you should stay home. No, I got business to do. I'm going on a plane and I land and sure enough, in the next day I'm being shot at with a machine gun. Um, you know, th that's not normal behavior for, for, you know, I'm not someone who was in the military. I didn't grow up in a criminal family. Um, so somehow I found, I think the but don't anger. You think, don't you think it was, all, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but don't you think it was almost yeah. culti cultivated by that long-term physical abuse? Because it went on for like 10 years, as you said. And, <laughs> and she must have seen that it wasn't working. All of this physical retribution wasn't working because you just keep rebelling, keep rebelling, almost more so as a consequence, wasn't it? And, Abs you, and you refused to show the pain when your teacher was beating you, you'd refuse to show the pain. So it's almost, yeah, it just wasn't working. That's what, I, that's what I can't fathom. You know, your mother clearly loved you and you speak about her with great reverence and she was clearly a very impressive woman who had all this pressure from her family to beat you, to bring you into line. But when she could see that it wasn't working after several years, then why did it continue? I just, I, that's what I can't she, understand. She, she no, she she didn't see it. She as I as I mentioned, she said she was a bull, and mm. and I I was just determined to be free. Um, she um, that was the first book that I was writing, the original book I, about our identity, how our identity develops, and because for me, my, the identity that had been imposed on me was that I was a troublemaker, and I and you know when someone says when you start as a child. Someone says, he's trouble, he's trouble, he's trouble. At a certain point, you know, it's the person says, well, I guess I'm trouble. Right. If you're told and, that and, many and so, yeah, so the, the friends I chose, and no disrespect to them, the, the work I chose, the, the partners I chose, the, all the life cho choices I made from there were from basically, well, I'm trouble. Well, if I'm going to be trouble, I might as well be the best trouble. But somehow, what the, the, the real mystery is how I didn't end up in jail, how I didn't end up, uh, you know, a, a heroin addict, how I didn't end up, because that is, a, that is the path that happens to many people. Their sense of self-esteem, their sense of self-worth is completely diminished. When your parents don't protect you, you feel that you're literally being fed to the wolves, which is what I felt like. Now, in something in my soul fought back and said, you're not going, you know, I, I just, I never cried ever. I never, and I never broke down. I just, and, and somehow there was a switch in me. I, I, I try to describe it in the book that it was right around the age of eight or nine where I could literally feel joy leaving me, you know, I, I and I, and afterwards, I, I mean, I, I always laughed and played, but I didn't have joy. I didn't because I'd never felt safe. And so for decades, I, I had a difficult time. I, I mean, I always had one eye towards the door. Wake or asleep, I was always, you're, when you are beat so many times, when you're put through so much punishment, when you're in pain, and when you're in pain, everything is a threat to you. 
anything, you know, so you're constantly on the lookout for trouble. Now, what I tried to convey in the book is I may have done it unconsciously. Um, I can't say that I was, you know, had the wisdom of an 80-year-old man in a 20-year-old body. I, I, something kept propelling me forward to look for role models, to look for something better. But what happened is I became really good. When, when you're constantly staring at the horizon looking for trouble, guess what happens? You become good at spotting trouble. And, 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 and so this is one of the reasons why I didn't know what a crisis manager was. I didn't know what a restructuring you know, uh, consultant was. And I was very good at it because I could read the room. I could read the landscape and I could see in four or five different directions and be it completely calm. My blood pressure actually dropped when I was working. And, and I could see this person's lying, this person's a thief, this person's you know, conning me, and on and on and on. Because that, that, I would, that was the environment I grew up in. Yeah. And so I, 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 I considered myself blessed and fortunate. Many of my friends and acquaintances that I'd come through life you know, uh, you read about it and you, we've spoken about it, have ended up in jail for one thing or another, uh, have ended up dead, uh, ended up close to dead. And for some reason, I was spared. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I mean, I think I know why I'm alive now. And this is why I've walked away from, you know, why I wrote Corporate Undertaker and, and, and taken on different challenges trying to help other people because I didn't want to believe that, Oh, you know, I, I, there was many times in my life where I've said, okay, there, I cannot possibly be put through all this pain for no reason. There has to be a reason that I continually am knocked on my ass either from one, you know, losing my eyesight to having people cheat me to people wanting to kill me to, I, I have to, use this somehow and so what i've done is i've basically most of the people that know me there was a, a one persona that said wow look at this very talented man who's tough and you know some have called me a hero some have called me an absolute menace and lots of bad words i don't want to use right now and they thought i was crazy to walk away from these these successes in this lucrative life um and i for me I thought, no, I, I have to find a greater meaning in this because I know that there's other people suffering. And uh, let, me try to, let me try to make sense of it and help people share it at, the, at, at my own expense. And um, so a maybe, lot of- Maybe that's why you survived because you weren't consumed by rage. Loads of those people that go down the path of you know, jail and as you say, end up dead, maybe they just never get over that, being consumed with the rage of being treated that badly as a child. No, I mean, you responded I, positively. I, I, listen, I, I, I put in, it, it was difficult to put in there. I mean, I hope it, I'm, I'm pretty sure it'll make the final cut, but because you got the first draft, but you know, I put in there the, 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 some of the things I did as a teenager. Yeah, uh, I'm never getting a in a car with you. <laughs> no, I'm a very safe driver today. <laughs> thank you. Um, but I, I, I was, um, look, I was a very good thief. I was a very good juvenile delinquent. Um, I could steal anything. I could break into anything. And, um, and I, 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 I don't know. There was a switch and said, well, why? 
why why do why do that why why do just be be honest and 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 see again that helped me and I, I, I talk about it in corporate undertaker as well the thing that kept me alive in moscow in those early 90s and mid 90s when it was an extremely violent world i said to my i was 24 25 years old 26 and said don't lie don't exaggerate don't promise anything that like if you think you can't shut that door say i can't shut that door and what happened is i developed a reputation of being honest nice and 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 it was my honesty that kept me alive i didn't carry a gun with me i mean i had security guards but it was the honesty because had i lied done and later on in life when i was back here in america i mean i've had my emails texts phone calls long before Hillary <laughs> subpoenaed multiple, multiple times because they're part of a, a bankruptcy case. And um, so I've had everything examined, right? I've called judges, lawyers, CEOs, <laughs> bankers, the worst you can imagine in writing. <laughs> but I didn't lie. Nice. <laughs> I didn't lie. That, didn't that'll be cheat. on your epitaph. Yeah, I didn't lie. I didn't cheat. I mean, there was a couple of times I had to bend the law, but I did it to protect others. I didn't benefit one bit from it. In fact, it cost me. But I, I didn't. I used to tell, like, I wouldn't let someone buy me a cup of coffee. I was that protective, and because I knew it, it's never, it's never. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, the moment they're buying you something, they want something later. And I, everyone who worked for me, I was adamant. I'm like, don't, don't, don't lie about your billable hours. Don't stretch. Don't because don't give them anything easy. At some point, there's going to be a crossroads of, 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 of a business decision or a moral decision. And if you have the hint of anything on you that is that is uh, you know negative or can be called into question, they will tear you to shreds. I would have been put in jail. I would have been, you know, completely, you know, uh, had my reputation completely killed. Um, and, and I actually could have been killed, but none of that happened. In 20, 25 years of doing crisis management, most of my partners, every year, they were, they, they were involved in litigation. And they would, it was not atypical to have them spend $100,000 or more, $200,000 in, um, in legal defense. In 25 years, one of the things I'm most proud of, not one dollar did I spend or my firm spend defending me in any litigation. I never got sued. A couple of people tried to sue me and it never got past me because they had no case. And because I was, you know, I'm not a schoolboy, as you know. I mean, I mean I'm not a choir boy or, you know, or altar boy. Um, but I, I just decided not to break those rules. And, and so that's getting back to my childhood and whatever. there was, I was around a lot of people. I mean, I have friends who've, you know, assaulted police officers or involved in bookmaking and, and uh, all, all kinds of things where, who, who, you know, were completely associated and involved with the um, organized crime. And a lot of them tried to recruit me over the years. And I said, no, thank you. You know, I have nothing bad to say about them. They're human beings and, they, they live, you know, they make their choices. Um, but I don't know. I, I just, I, I, I couldn't cross that line. 
So, well, so maybe so we've talked in so many times in the past. I think episode thirty-one and thirty-eight I looked at earlier on today, and they're ones that I've made with you in the past. Fantastic conversations. I think we've probably talked about adversity and the potential significance of it. That sounds to me like another example of how adversity in your life, however extreme it was in this case, really extreme, but it's sort of been a platform, a springboard for you. It's helped you in some ways, even though it's regrettable that it happened in the first place. But it's sort of, it seems to me there's a correlation between the two. Between yeah, no, your I'm morals, s- between, you know, always having that mantra, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be honest with people. And and, and what happened to you when you were a kid? Well, that was, again, now I'm going full circle to my mom. I, It's going to be difficult publishing this book because um, I, I've prepared my father and I've walked him through you know, the conversations and, uh, and he doesn't actually sister, appear that much in the book, does he? Oh, he does. He's, yeah. he, he does, but he, you know, it was a different time. My, my, my father was, you know, like a lighthouse in my life. Your you mother's know, he, much he, more he, dominant there. Well, that's how it was, you know, mm. fathers went to work and yep. went out and, you know, it was a division of labor and the whole, you know, women stayed home. They were homemakers. No one was out, outranked the other. You know, there was, they, were, they respected each other. There was just a division of labor and fathers were there. It, that was the, the time where it was still the notion of, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. Sure. You know, that was that type of world. And it, corporal uh, punishment was pretty much standard as well. It you was know, Even fine. when I was a kid, yeah. Yeah, no, I want to get to that because I don't want to let that go. But my, 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 my mom was, you know, she was uh, 20 years old, very young away from her family and living with her in-laws they didn't have enough money to have their own home and around a couple domineering people who were constantly criticizing constantly criticizing uh, her parenting skills her her whatever skills and she was young and and just wore down her self-esteem and thought that the answer was to you know discipline me and it wasn't just me that the, the, there was, it, 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 that was the environment. They just, you were out of line, hit them or hit her. And it was horrible. Um, but when you ask about my moral compass, she also instilled that. I mean, God help me if I, if I try to take a pack of gum from a, you know, a local store. And she's an you incredibly know? hardworking person as well. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that thank you. She, she, you know, all of the, and right, she instilled more good than bad. She had a a bad period of time. It didn't work. And then, um, you know, she changed. She changed. You have to allow room for forgiveness in people. We all have shortcomings. We all make mistakes. None of us, you know, maybe there are, maybe there are some that are benevolent, but had she not changed, uh, I, I, I would have not had a relationship with her had she not been remorseful. I mean, she was, to the day she died, she was consumed with guilt. Um, and, you know, she would express it to me. And so what are you going to do? How many times are you going to, you know, if, if a person is genuine, they change their behavior, they ask for forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you know, you don't have to accept it. But I, I chose to because she, she did... She became so much more. She matured. And every time she saw a young mother, um, you know, alone with a child, she, she went to help them, help, you know, that, that, that particular woman. And, and, and 
women flocked to her because she had made mistakes, she had suffered, and she had grown from it. That she, this is why, she, you know, she was a hero to so many different women and men because she was non-judgmental of them and she would offer guidance of be more patient, be more forgiving. You may want to think that over. You know, it, she was very, she grew from it, you know? So you have to allow, I look at, if I, if I, there's people, if you find people from my teen years or 20, even, even my, my thirties or forties, I'm sure you'll find people think, Oh my God, what an asshole, you know? Um, because they knew one aspect of me and they, 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 they didn't, you know, they don't know how I've changed or I've grown. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, you, you have to put, you know, allow for that. But I want to talk about just the the corporal punishment. Mm -hmm. That was insane. Okay. It's one thing for your parent to hit you. It's another thing for teachers and principals to, to, to hit leather straps. Okay. And I know that there's people in my community that will not like me saying any of this stuff, okay? But it was wrong. It was so wrong. We used to wear, the environment I grew up in, we wore it like a badge of honor. Yeah, I got the strap. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. Beating, beating. I I hate when I hear, for example, because that stuff trickles into society and goes forward. Abused becomes the abuser. Yeah, but it happens in, in things like what we were talking about, your actions and lack of empathy. Who do you reward? The people that are toughest. Yes, let's make them CEO, male or female, and give them lots of money. You know, the tough when I hear I've heard executives say, you know, Dom, we have to have tough love. I say, go, go fuck yourself. Would you even know where tough love is? What is what is that? Who invented that tough yeah, love? Yeah. You know, stupid, how about stupid. just there's be no love? There's no love at all. It's just the tough. No, just be <laughs> loving. Okay. Be mm-hmm. nurturing. You know, I, I, you don't have to, you know, you, what you, so we talked about gardening. Do you go out to your garden and say, listen, you fucking beans, you better grow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't, you know it's, it's insane. We're, we're, we're living beings. There's no, you don't, you don't beat, you know, uh, love into somebody. That's absolutely not nonsense. Yeah, so and so, true. so true. Anyway, that I believe that's that world existed for a long time. You know, I didn't talk about my high school where there was priests that once you, um, uh, you know, if you reached a certain level of uh, delinquency, let's say, um, they would take you into the basement of the high school near the boiler room. Some would just do it in the classroom. They had, because it was Canada, they had uh, a goalie stick from hockey, okay, uh, or, or a paddle, and they would they would have you drop your pants, and they would paddle your behind, you know, uh, how many times they they determined was acceptable, you know, until you learned your lesson, and then they would have you sign it, sign, sign the paddle, it. yeah, why? <laughs> what you tell me what oh sick God. mind creates this stuff yeah, it never happened it, it never happened to me thank god because i would have hit them back you know <laughs> i mean i just i think they could sense who they could prey on who and who they could yeah, right. but there was there were teachers i remember one teacher there were metal desks he if you misbehaved in this class and this is the 80s okay this is the 40s or 50s or the 19th century this is the 1984 let's say they would have the, you bend underneath the desk. So your head is underneath the metal desk. 
and they would take out this like a hockey stick or paddle and hit you on your your ass. And so they would it hit your ass, and then your head would naturally cock up and hit the metal desk. So you're in fact getting hit twice in front of the whole class as a as a teenager. Again, never happened to me, but I, I I'm stating these things today because it's just so horribly, horribly wrong. And the reason I talk about brain trauma, what happened to me, and I put all these things, because I know there are millions of people out there suffering, mm. okay? Yeah, that you they, sent me a scan recently of a healthy brain next to your brain, and I don't know anything about the nuances of how exactly our brain should look, but yours looked very different to the paradigm. <laughs> well, that was my old brain. I've gone through the therapy. and Yeah, amazing. That's the last chapter, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that I fixed it, and that was really the impetus to 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 write this book because once I learned of the dynamics of how people can go through, uh, you know, feel depression or anxiety, or feel uh, isolated, which is happening more and more because of social media and the way we live, uh, how um, people become less tolerant, all of the things that we've touched on. Um, many of these things are just associated to or can be associated to actual brain damage that we're so vulnerable as children that, you know, you, you, you have a child now, you know, they're, they're, they're when we're children, you're, it's it, the, the, the shell isn't, f- you know, f- fully developed. Absolutely. Yeah. You, a simple fall can cause a weakness in the flow of blood in that part of the brain, which later on can become a behavioral problem. So it'll manifest in emotions or uh, in hormonal problems, even digestive problems. The, the moment you experience head trauma, the, the flora and fauna in your gut are affected and become imbalanced, wow. Wow. which the moment, like, so if you fall down, you know, smack your head, or, you know, if you're playing on the playground and you fall down and you hit your head hard enough, your, it, the signal goes to your gut and immediately causes an imbalance, which can, can, can continue for years and years, which will cause, uh, you know, a lot of people think that they have anxiety or depression, and they're not sure why. And a lot of it is attributed just to uh, a gut imbalance, a hormonal imbalance, and it's all tied to actual physical problem in the brain, not an, an emotional. So it's, you know, when they say it's in your head, yeah, it's actually in your head. So I, I detail that where I started to experience problems with lights and I was becoming less tolerant. I couldn't remember things uh, and everyone started this, you know, would dismiss it with, you know, uh, colloquialisms and, uh, uh, you know, cliches. Well, you're just getting older. And I'd say, well, I'm not old, you know, I'm in my early fifties. What, why I shouldn't be experiencing these things. And, you know, the death of my mom helped accelerate me going to look into it. And sure enough, there was actual brain damage that had been there from all of the beatings I took as a kid. And some of it was attributable to the way I lived. So while I didn't outwardly demonstrate that I was under stress, my brain and my body were under stress. Yeah, yeah. And so, again, I mentioned this to people because we live in a society where, again, we're, we're rewarding the high achievers, you know, we're rewarding the, the high achievers, and yet they're burning out and, and burning their brains 
which burns their nervous system, which makes them miserable people in the community. Yeah, and the way that you um, describe that in that chapter, I don't want to do too much of a spoiler there because it's amazing the therapy that you went through, which I don't think many people will have heard of. It's SPECT, is it? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. yeah which is fascinating. That whole chapter is amazing too. And I'm just, are you feeling, just in short, are you feeling way better now? Do you feel, are you feeling more way content? Better. And do you feel, are you at the point in your life where you feel the greatest amount of contentment in general? Yeah. That's uh, awesome. Pretty, pretty close to, I, I felt pretty good in my twenties when things were going really well. But you know, when I when I of course. Per, per, when I owned a soccer team and uh, was 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 flying high in my that I, I felt pretty good. I want to admit that, that was those <laughs> those early sensations were, but were fun. But you're but further I, down the journey, the, that that road of understanding, right now, and what your purpose is, and what what motivates you, and how you want to be as a person. You're much further down there. Yeah, no, because I've experienced so many things. I've already now I I I, I could live as a Shaolin monk, but I, I I know that's not my place. I it's I know I have to put myself out there, um, and if it's not have to, I so I want to, I want to genuinely go out and help people, and and in in whatever way they may be dealing. You know, I I talk about the work I did with AIDS and HIV and my my time in Haiti. We we had that other conversation. I, I was, you know, those times I was looking for things and I would just throw myself into a fire and try to help. Now I'm doing it with a little bit more construct and more, more direction where I see, okay, I may have 30 good years left on this earth. What am I going to do with it? And I, I've already, I've eaten the finest foods. I've lived a, a wonderful life. The material aspects yeah, I, I still like them. I mean, I, I mean, who who doesn't like comfort, you know, and 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 who doesn't like the finest of whatever that they can get their hands on, um, but that's so far in, in in behind me. Now it's really about how can I touch people? How can I take all of what I've gone through, the suffering and the pain, and actually try to impart something on the next people, the people behind me? And if it's if it's anything that I can leave. You, you know, if when we talk about leaving an imprint uh, on Earth, you know, there there's multiple ways of leaving imprints on on people and humanity. So this is just my way, um, but all of us have a way to affect the human beings that we see. You don't need to take on some grand measures or get beat over the head <laughs> to be effective. Beautiful. You know, I think maybe one of your listening to you for as long as I've listened, like I just think that maybe one of your gifts, one of your many gifts is that you don't get stuck in the past. You just keep moving forward all of the time. And if you if you were to get stuck in the past, I mean, you'd be quite you'd probably be quite a depressed person. You could you could have a lot of a lot more issues than you do. But you're just like, that's done. Let's just keep going forward. Let's see what life has to offer. And you really are just like, you know, just wringing every last ounce of life out of this this planet and your existence yeah my sister likes to say uh, my brother has amnesia <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I don't actually forget about the past and trust me it was painful writing these books uh these past couple of years it really I, I i i drove the stock price of a couple alcohol companies up very high um and so it was um but you know, just move forward. Just get up and go. How, how 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 long? Like something awful happens to you. 
how long are you going to bathe in that that misery? Some people bathe you know? their whole life in it, Dom. Whole life. Oh, mm. I absolutely agree. It's it's. Look, I could have found every excuse to be what a, a drug addict, an alcoholic. Uh, to you can you, you you can find any reason to feel sorry for yourself. Okay, any reason. And today, I feel horrible for for kids that are you know when I hear things of suicide rates increasing and um you know uh, uh, eating disorders increasing because of what they see on instagram and other social media this is when i say go and and in the my in my brain here is tough love go hug people go reassure them let them go out let them learn about adversity you know that the, the because once you go through some level of challenge this is how plants exist this is how animals exist and how human beings. Once you go through some level of challenge, your confidence builds. Your confidence builds and you get to a point and say, I don't care what, what I see in the mirrors is irrelevant. It's what I do in life. Question I want to finish on with you is, what is the most effective thing that you do for your physical and emotional health on a daily basis? Well, it's, I, you have to move. I move. I walk a lot. Okay. I, 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 go, I go out and walk. But the, the most effective is the quality of food I put in my body. Mm-hmm. Not going to lie. That is, I try to buy the best and the cleanest food that I put in because, and, and I take a lot of different supplements. I mean, there's a reason I married a naturopathic doctor. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, what, so I, and, and your naturopathic doctor wife has told me before that, you know, health for everybody is bespoke. It's different for everybody. But are there some real game changing supplements that you take that you would prescribe for others? Let me see as I walk <laughs> to my pantry because <laughs> I, I can't do this from memory. And my wife is absolutely right. Her routine is different than mine. Um, I need a lot less sleep than her. She mm. needs more sleep. She's on a treadmill at 6 a.m. She does yoga. She meditates. I do weights. Occasionally, I do Pilates. So one of the things I will tell you, milk thistle is very important because okay. we have – a lot of toxins in the world uh, and whatever I said about clean this, clean that, that helps uh, energize the liver to get rid of toxin. Okay. Good one. The other one that I really like is activated charcoal. Ah. Activated charcoal. um, Some people have to be careful because they may get constipated. Sorry to get personal, but that's the details. But if you drink alcohol, for example, or if you have indulged in crap food, uh, or you're traveling in dirty places, take two capsules of activated charcoal in the evening. It will bind the toxins and help them out. Really? Very, wow. Yeah, it, yeah. So the usually, so this is a remedy that they've used with people that they've been exposed to, um, you know, to different toxins, but they've now figured out how to work it on a, um, on a daily basis. So it's one of the things I will tell you that when I take, like, for example, if I'm having, uh, you know, drinks, uh, whatever it is, or just ordinary, you know, wine, martinis, um, the next day I feel much better because it's binding those toxins. So that, that that's uh, um, a, a very important element. So milk the, thistle and the activated charcoal, they're both really to, to get rid of those toxins, right? Yeah. And if you're looking to... To boost, I will tell you, and it's not promoting my wife, it's promoting the naturopathic community, is the really the uh, 
of the intravenous uh, nutritional IVs. So they call them, um, you know, they started decades ago as the Myers cocktail, which is, uh, you know, B-complex and a handful of things. And they're but, very on vogue now, aren't they, these IV drips? Yeah, but some of the, some of them, well, what's happened is Western medicine has embraced them and they started calling them functional medicine. And some of them put pharmaceuticals in them. But you have to be careful if anyone's going to go out and do these, make sure that, that the ingredients are made in the United States. It's because they, you, you know, they do all kinds of funny things around the world and the integrity is not the same. But here, particularly in California, there's a lot of high quality uh, um, pharmaceutical compounding places that have great ingredients. But if you want to talk about protecting yourself from viruses or you're just worn down and you, because most of us are, um, just doing a vitamin C um, uh, IV and with glutathione, uh, those are the most powerful antioxidants that you can get into your body. Anytime I'm feeling somewhat run down or I feel a sore throat or whatever it is, I do one of those IVs with 10,000 or 15,000 milligrams of vitamin C and uh, I forget how much glutathione in it. Uh, and instantly I feel better. Really? So straight away, straight away. Vitamin C is the most, it's ascorbic acid and it is the most underrated and underused, uh, uh, supplement. Uh, it, it just works, uh, wonders at helping to nourish it. Our bodies can't hold on to vitamin C. So that's one of the reasons we need to constantly take it. But it's basically, just think of it, it's an acid. It goes through and cleans all the junk in your body. Right, nice. That yeah. is glutathione. Okay, awesome. And your wife, Dr. Nirvana, her podcast is called Regenerate You, isn't it? It's absolutely brilliant. I love it. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll pass it on. Yeah, she's getting getting quite a following. And um, she too, she's come into her own. And, and it's come through a lot of health struggles and um, she shares it with her, her audience and with her, her patients. I mean, a lot of people have really, as you can imagine, been struggling with COVID, both those that are unvaccinated and those that are vaccinated. There's been positive, I'm not going to take any political position, uh, because there's been adverse health effects that she's seen and patients that in either situation one, wow. for example, yeah, well, one, for example, uh, women have been, some that have been vaccinated uh, have experienced a, a hair loss, wow. you know, like big hair loss, big amounts of hair loss. And then there's ones that have been unvaccinated that have experienced other kinds of problems. So uh, it's basically you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Mm. Uh, but she's been, the good news is, you know, their, her philosophy is, feeding the immune system and and helping it be strong enough to fight back and grow so it's essentially treating the body like a garden so and that's what she does she uses the highest she's very particular about the um the, the ingredients that go into her um uh, you know ivs and to her shots and supplementation but again it's it each person is way different you know <laughs> it's very very different yeah, of course. Uh, so, yeah, which is something I've really learned from her. Um, I feel like I've been talking to you for like two and a half minutes and we're nearly at two hours now. I I, <laughs> I, I, I just have this feeling every time I speak to you that I would love to go and spend some time with you somewhere. Like not maybe not, you know, out of Mongolia or Haiti, but some, <laughs> some yurt in the middle of nowhere where we could just chat way into the night. 
Well, you know, uh, one uh, since since you moved out of San Francisco, I used to love San Francisco. Then it became a little bit too crazy for me. Um, but I actually, before I lived here, I wanted to come. I wanted to move to San Luis Obispo. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, the world. So yeah, I, I, you know, one maybe one thing settled down here with COVID, we can get together for one or yes. two meals. I love um, it. And uh, I'll share with you more about wine, since now I know that you enjoy, uh, you know, wine. Um, I, yeah, I will absolutely bring you some wines. I guarantee that you haven't tried, and they're not ten dollars, but under twenty dollars. That that you'll you'll look at and you say, really, is this this type of wine? So that's yes, I I promise you that. But yeah, I have. I want to make my own wine again. I just, I, I can't. There's only, there's, there's only so many homes that have basements, and I can't, I can't make wine in the garage just because it's too warm and it's morally wrong for me. I can't. It's just, it's, it's too confusing. You can't put food near a car. Um, but um, hopefully one day I'll have a. Uh, I'm gonna a, hold a you. Cellar. I'm definitely gonna hold you to the wine tasting at some stage. I think we could go on. Um, you know put the world to rights one night out in some in the middle of nowhere looking at the stars I, I i'd really love to do that at some stage um i know that your book's not published yet but how can where can people find you how can people reach out to you in the meantime um it, it will be on amazon and my guess is it will probably be about two months from now mm -hmm. um but you know i'm putting it through the process now of editors and publishers we'll see they may not like it um it's there's already parts that have changed that what you've seen you saw the very raw very first I took a chance, but I trusted you it's brilliant. Uh, to, to overlook all the grammatical errors and things like that. Um, it, it'll be on Amazon and every major retailer. Um, what I'm excited about is we're speaking with a publisher in Germany who's interested in translating uh, Corporate Undertaker and maybe this book into different languages distributed in Europe. So that would be fun. Yes, my man. That sounds absolutely amazing. Well, yeah, and again, for me... For me, it, for me, the goal is just to reach people. I, I, I really just to reach people. I mean, I did, I, I did all of my consulting work through COVID pro bono, <laughs> which my wife wasn't too happy about. But um, I, I, that's that's my mission now to reach people and help them in whatever way I can. You've got some great lessons as well to tell people, tell the world about. It's just fantastic. I, I learn from you every time I, I consume any of your content. I think you're a fantastic human being, and I loved, I love chatting to you. Thank you, Oliver. I think the same of you. I really appreciate that you do these podcasts and I really appreciate you giving me a chance to get my voice out there. <sighs> the Natural High. Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website, thenaturalhighclub.com. And remember to subscribe to the Natural High podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone.